0: I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening today. Earlier this summer, I stepped into the pages of our guest's new novel and had dinner at the Tally Ho Supper Club in the Wisconsin Northwoods. The meal started with a relish tray. It progressed to generous portions of meat and carbs, and it ended with lavish desserts that were not grasshoppers. More on that in a moment. The Lakeside Supper Club in J. Ryan Straddle's book has been around since 1919, and it is the subject of pride, family and community, angst, frustration and nostalgia. The Lakeside is where our narrator tells us people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives, and yet it is an anachronism. And that makes it all the more precious to the people of this northern town. J. Ryan Straddle is the author of The Lager Queen of Minnesota. His new novel is titled Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, and he's with me in the studio. Welcome. It's good to talk to you.
1: Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I think we better tackle the issue of the grasshoppers right away. Oh, why not? (laughs) According to your novel, I didn't know this, Supper Club waitresses... Are not supposed to come over to the to the table and say, "Does anyone want a grasshopper for dessert?" They are to arrive to say, "When would you like the grasshopper served?" Is that right?
1: That's what one former supper club owner told me.
0: Fill me in why. What's the technique? What's the what's the method to the madness there?
1: Um, that supper club owner told me that they put their daughter through college. On grasshopper money in <laughs> no the 1970s, way. what? With that method, yeah. Are
0: you kidding? We yeah. should let's describe what a grasshopper. I've had them, but maybe, maybe there are some people in the audience who haven't.
1: Oh, I'm afraid I can't help you there. I'm what? lactose intolerant. What? You, I, I, there's ice cream in it. You've never had a grasshopper. There's like
0: cream de mints yeah. and ice cream, and I think. There's also like a little shot of something yeah. if you
1: ask for it. Yeah, I think so. Boy,
0: you are missing. Lactose I know, intolerant. I know.
1: I know. It's, it's a Jay, curse. Jay, come on. When I return to the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: okay. Terrible so terrible
1: place to be lactose intolerant. <laughs> it um, is. The, the, oh, the northern Midwest in France.
0: <laughs> so my Supper Club experience at the Tally Ho, have you ever heard of it?
1: Oh Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you it's, have? It's, well, yeah. It's in, oh. it's in a few volumes on websites that... Catalog Midwestern Supper Clubs. Oh. And it's a prominent one up there with Dreamland. And, Jeez, yeah.
0: Didn't realize that. Yeah, it's, out yeah. Near, it's near Hayward, Yeah, Wisconsin. and Hayward,
1: Hayward used to have a really wonderful one called Turk's Inn. Huh. Yeah. But which, that closed? Yeah, unfortunately. As they do. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so my Supper Club experience at the Tally Ho did not start with brandy old fashions, mm-hmm. which... See, you are looking askance because that seems to be...
1: I'm a little the, surprised. ...the
0: required... Yeah, why? Let, let's describe why.
1: They seem de rigueur in Wisconsin. And in fact, the question <laughs> I get when I'm at a Wisconsin supper club isn't, do I want branding the old fashioned? That's not an option. It's yeah. sweet or sour.
0: Really? hmm Hmm. So um, I felt like maybe I'm not getting the full Monty of the supper club.
1: No. There's right? always... There's always another chance. <laughs> was I being
0: was I being denied? What would you say?
1: Um, I'd say each separate club meal has to be the best you can do at the time with the appetite you have. Just go back and <laughs> well, make up for diplomatic. lost time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you missed out, Yeah. give yourself another chance. It's still summer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go drive down to Widerholz in Miesville or... Across the border in Wisconsin, okay. find a supper club and uh, have whatever you didn't have last.
0: Demand night. a brandy old fashioned. Yeah, well, which after one of those, I you know mm. I'd be spinning and I wouldn't even need a <laughs> meal. I <laughs> think. Yeah. Where'd this come from? Is this really? Is this something that you kind of created for the novel, or is this really true? As you researched your supper clubs, it was like you got to have the brandy old fashioned. As I, in I researched
1: this. supper clubs, it became increasingly important, particularly in Wisconsin supper clubs that the Old fashions have brandy, and several supper club owners told me that there is no cocktail they sell more of than the brandy old fashioned. Oh,
0: fashion. my gosh, I am shocked. That's a yeah. hardcore cocktail there.
1: It is. Yeah, I know.
0: People get in their cars and drive after <laughs> after a few yeah. of those things, and then a grasshopper at the end of the meal? Mm-hmm. Whoa.
1: Well, the idea is you're not in and out in 45 minutes. Right. Yeah.
0: It's an experience. It's an
1: experience, and plus you get a basket of bread. Right. Um, you get relish huge tray, a giant hunk meal. of meat. Yeah, maybe yeah. a trip to the salad bar amidst right. that. And right. this is no ordinary salad bar. If you haven't been to a supper club yet, wait until you go to a supper <laughs> club salad bar. I believe the salad bar was invented at a supper no club. No way. Yeah, the Sky Club in Plover, Wisconsin. Wow. And that's a claim. That's, that you're just
0: going to stick by? Oh yeah. Well, that's also a claim I,
1: I I doubt anyone should challenge. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just listen to it and accept it. Yeah. And I've don't seen some challenge.
1: wonderful things in Suburb club salad bars you don't see what, in your typical like salad. what pickled herring. Ugh. Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh. Why? You can tell you're in Scandinavian land, right? That's right. When you see that's this pickled right. herring. What else?
1: Ah, uh, different kinds of jello. Okay. Yeah. Three bean salad. Uh, what else have I seen in the cheese curds? Yeah. Yeah, especially in Wisconsin. Yeah, Which uh, <laughs> you're not going to put on a salad. Macaroni you're salad. You're just going to gnaw on yeah. those. Right. Simply. I mean, things that are right. independent salads as well, like potato right. salad, mac- macaroni salad. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jeez, that sounds good. Okay, so was your uh, were you raised basically going to supper clubs when there was a special event in your family?
1: Yes, yes? when there was a special event. Yeah. Uh, other than that, very rarely.
0: How was it decided when something merited a trip to the Supper Club?
1: Wow, great question. I remember when my great grandma Johnson visited from Hunter, North Dakota, the Supper Club had to be the destination. This is special enough that we've got to take (laughs) great grandma to the Supper Club. Yeah. Other than that, I think when I turned 16, I was able, you know, my parents took me to the Steamboat Inn Mm. in Prescott. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one Supper Club outside Hastings, Black Stallion, where you ate for free on your birthday. Wow. So we would go to that one sometimes for that reason. Wow, <laughs> the value. Uh, and then uh, Steamboat Inn was also a place where, uh, yeah, I celebrated my graduation. Yeah, it was a place where I ended up working. I worked there. My manager was Mike Rowan, and worked alongside some other high school friends. I grew up in Hastings, so Prescott wasn't that far away, and it was remarkable for me to walk in every day and work in a building. That I'd only been to maybe four or five times before then, mm-hmm. and only on very special occasions.
0: So did working there ruin the romance? Or, <laughs> you know, you saw, you know, when you see behind, when you see the skeleton, when you see behind the scenes of something.
1: It was my first back of house experience. Yeah. So it did deglamorize all restaurants. See? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've worked in a lot of restaurants. There's, boy... You go through those swinging doors and yeah. it's a whole different world. Absolutely. right The romance is over. No. Yeah. yeah. so when you when the family would go to supper clubs, uh, just just tell me a little bit about what you what you t- remember from those experiences. I mean what what is in the misty, kind of nostalgic tinged? I remember feeling a little
1: nervous because looking at the prices, they were a little higher than the restaurants we normally went to. You were
0: nervous for your parents, like yeah. how could they pay for this? Yeah, oh, that's yeah, interesting. how were we going to pull this off?
1: Yeah, uh, we didn't eat out all that often, um, and so I'd see I'd see those prices and go, "Oh, I I better not take advantage of this and order to something crazy." Wow, all. yeah,
0: that's awfully nice of you as a young boy. Oh, thanks to worry about your parents' finances.
1: If my brother was here. I'd I'd still say this. He'd order the most expensive thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what does he have that you don't? Just a joie de vivre or something? That... Definitely.
1: He he's he takes to my mom's step uh as a uh unre, unrepentant voluptuary.
0: Really? Yeah. See? yeah. He yeah, loves he, every aspect of life,
1: right? Uh every aspect of life he can afford. Right, yeah. and as a kid, yeah, he was like, "Why not try the most expensive thing?" On right, the menu? when else am I going to get a chance to do this? Exactly, I wouldn't buy this. For you go myself. to a
0: supper club twice a year; you yeah. might as well. That's right. Yeah. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. I'm in studio with Jay Ryan Straddle. He's the author. I'll bet you know this, of the Lager Queen of Minnesota and his new novel is titled Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. And we've started our conversation this morning talking about our experiences, his as a child, mine fairly new of the whole supper club scene. And have we agreed, Jay, that it's kind of an experience unto itself? Do they? Let me ask you this about that. Do they have a version of supper clubs in other, you know, areas of the United States that would in some ways resemble, or is there something about the Midwestern supper club that is really different?
1: I think there are individual restaurants in most cities that occupy the space that supper clubs do in their environment. But I don't think there's a genre of restaurant as consistent as supper clubs are in terms of their menu, their style, their history that exist in that those numbers in other regions of the united states
0: okay so here's why i asked so i was talking to my mother about this and she grew up in pennsylvania right and i said what was your memory of going to a supper club oh we got really dressed up everybody pulled out their best clothes everybody was going to have cocktails it was a fancy night sometimes there was music that didn't resemble really anything no. that I saw at the Tally Ho.
1: No. And in the past, many summer clips have had live music in events. Uh, some still do. In the
0: midway.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the midway. Mm-hmm. The
0: ones you're writing about right, here. Right, Yeah.
1: But I can't think of any right now that have any kind of dress code. Yeah. Right. It's still a nice night out.
0: I mean, you could walk in dressed like you're dressed. Yeah, With a Radiohead t-shirt. Right. Right? <laughs> and a hat.
1: Yeah, most people do. Right. Yeah. Some people walk in after a day of fishing. Right. But you can also walk in in a suit, in a dress to celebrate your anniversary. Mm-hmm. No one will look at you sideways.
0: Right. And you won't mind if you're all dressed up. That jokers like <laughs> the Radiohead T-shirt dude is over there either. Right. No. You're uh, you fine with it. that. Yeah. It's part yeah. of the milieu. Mm-hmm. Wonder why.
1: <laughs> it's what do a you to- think? yeah. It's a it's a it's a tolerant atmosphere like that. Right. Yeah. It's family friendly too. That's true. Yeah. yeah,
0: you could bring kids in there. You're right. Absolutely. The nights we were there, the night we were there uh, earlier this summer, there were we were there with a big family group, and there were three other very long tables, all with like extended family. It was right. kind of neat.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful.
0: Not sure I'd see that in a lot of other restaurants.
1: No, I don't think you would. Yeah. Uh, at least restaurants like this.
0: So this is what I want to talk to you about. There's a kind of as I as I saw it. There's a push-pull about the value of nostalgia in the face of modernization. Mm -hmm. To reflect on that for a minute, and then I have some questions about that.
1: Yeah, I battle with it myself, partially because I'm 47. I have a son who's three. I don't expect him to value anything I'm nostalgic for. Really? And in fact, I think a lot of the stuff I might enjoy now and feel nostalgic for in the future will be things he'll consider to be immoral Or destructive. Immoral. Like a 15-minute shower. Ah. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how many of those people will be taking in 2050. Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. We'll all have (laughs) trickling shower heads in California. Um, Anyhow, yeah, I look at past generations as instructive of this. How each generation takes what, if anything, they want from the previous generation and make the world their own. So that's why setting a story in a supper club was so resonant to me. This is a building that encapsulates this Mm. transgenerational evolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not unusual for supper clubs to be in a family for generations. It's Well, it's unusual in this country for any business to last 100 years or longer, let alone a restaurant. But supper clubs do. I was just in uh, Stone Lake, Wisconsin, outside so outside of Spooner. And there I ate at a supper club that had been around since the early 1920s. What's
0: the name of that one? Do you remember?
1: Uh, Pine Ridge, I hmm. believe. Yeah. Wow. And it was wonderful. And being in there, I thought, well, there's also a certain element to not just nostalgia, but, but the nostalgic milieu where... Okay, this was probably outmoded at one point. Uh-huh. Then it became retro, so it became hip again. <laughs> yeah. And there's a certain timelessness if you just sort of dig your heels into a certain aesthetic, right? Like there might be a period of time where, okay, this is an old fashioned looking restaurant. This is not hip. This is not modern. Well, it's not contemporary, certainly. But when you don't change Amelia that much, and it is capturing an amber, a bit of the essence of what it was when it was created, it takes a certain timelessness. And whatever you think of that aesthetic, it's remarkable to walk in there and think I'm probably the twenty fifth thousand person, you know, to sit down and have a brandy old fashioned at this bar. Like like you know, you think if these walls could talk, but you also think I'm grateful that such places exist in these rural communities because they're a haven for locals Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Quite often it's guests, visitors, tourists in the dining room, but the bar, that's where locals go.
0: Yeah, so I'm glad you described that the way you did because you made me think about the purpose and the value of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Like is, I think some nostalgia can be, Not just dangerous, but, Mm. you know, um, not constructive.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, just retrograde. What's
0: good about nostalgia, do you think? Well,
1: I think there are aspects of looking backwards for answers, for comfort, that it's a psychological balm for an individual. I think the problem is when it gets prescriptive. It's like anything spiritual. I think it encompasses a tremendous value to an individual. But when you start telling other people that they should be nostalgic for the same things you mm-hmm. are, well, that's where it gets complicated. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, uh, the eras of the supper club, golden age, I'd say, you know, post-war years, 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. that wasn't a great time for a lot of people in America. And so that those trappings and aesthetics connote a more complicated realm for some.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. going just where just where I was thinking about. So, um I recently interviewed author Jeanette Walls. Mm. Have you mm-hmm. I'm sure you've read some of her books, The Glass Castle, and she's written some great historical fiction. And she has a new novel out that takes place during Prohibition mm. in rural Virginia. What's so interesting about it is, you know, some people find that era just Oh, back when men were men, you know, Mm. all that, all that nonsense. And what her novel really brings up is uh, there's a lot that we don't want to remember because we like to mythologize America. Mm -hmm. And that was a complicated time. So anyway, I want you to hear uh, what she has to say about the value and maybe the dangers of nostalgia. Here she is. I've come to believe that the, the great cure for um, nostalgia is research because I, I thought I'd kind of fall in love with the 1920s with all the jazz and the Fitzgerald mm. and everything. But in fact, it was a very dark period filled with fear of, of these immigrants that were coming over and women getting rights. What do you think?
1: Mm. Do, do you buy that? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that's potent.
0: But you're really lifting up this idea that... Although you've just kind of acknowledged mm-hmm. this is complicated, right? But you right. are lifting up this this okay. period in some right.
1: way. Yeah, the book is sort of trying to have it both ways. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, you've got characters like you better Mariel defend and Florence. that, Jay. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I, I'm, I interrupted you. Sorry.
1: Well, Betty and Florence. I mean, Florence comes of yeah. age during the Depression, and it's true. It's my research told me that this was an incredibly hostile and dangerous time for women. Yeah. And I wanted to capture that in the book as well, that the circumstances that led them to work in the supper club were perilous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they suffered great privations to get there. And that was the forage in which Florence's personality hardened. Yeah. Yeah, it was molded. And she emerged from it, a particular kind of person that makes decisions affecting other people's lives that they don't always understand. And because of it, she's a person oriented to the past in terms of how her value system affects the world she wants to inherit the supper club slight spoiler alert <laughs> because she
0: we wants, realize that pretty early yeah on the, because
1: she yeah. wants to sell it and she wants to sell it so she can acquire a piece of her past that she believes she can reacquire that is what she's living for she's living to reattain the last part of her life where she felt secure and that is symbolized by a building on Grand Avenue. And so she thinks about that building. And she knows if she's, if once she inherits the supper club, she'll sell it and buy this building and have her security back. I think that's what she believes in her head. And that's a dangerous notion. I mean, yeah. one of the things that nostalgia yep. moors us to, of course, is a past that's irretrievable. Wherever you want something that's irretrievable or retrievable in some mitigated or compromised way through the passages of time. Well, I mean, that's, what are you, what is it costing you? Mm -hmm. What compromises are you visiting on the present, on your current relationships, on what you could be creating if uh, you're too preoccupied with retrieving an essence that has come and gone?
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I was thinking that, you know, in yearning, there's so much of this mm-hmm. in in yearning for the past, you know you're like i said you're you're really mythologizing um what America is, who you are, often who your family is there's just this this sense that uh living in the past is. You get to, I guess, you get to recreate, right, this idea of who you were, which mm-hmm. I've always found, I've always found that kind of dull.
1: Yeah, I guess. And I'd say I'd I'd, I'd um, expand on that and say enforce the idea of who you are. Yeah. There is a character in my second book, Logger Queen of Minnesota, that describes her mother as someone whose mind is a bowl of lettuce that she's convinced is a salad. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah and that's what nostalgia can do it can reduce you to an easy value system internally that right. isn't compatible with the outside world that's right and that'll create dissonance frustration it and I us. think
0: it's shortchang I guess what I was trying to get at is it also short changes all the the vividness and the possibility of the world you're living in now
1: absolutely yeah hmm
0: so there's sentimentality in this book.
1: Yeah, there's some. Yeah.
0: So I I'm curious about how you know when it's enough. When mm. enough is enough sentimentality. Do mm. you have a little do you have a little meter in your head or
1: I guess I do. I I get to a certain point and I realize okay, that's <laughs> what? I don't have to add more frosting to this cake. Yeah, I feel like every cake needs some frosting, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I i'm always using cooking and food analogies when describing my work
0: that's interesting
1: um yeah like with the character felix you know how he Mm. helps out this uh this family and they express their gratitude by giving him and his son hockey equipment um and i thought well this is really sweet but i tried to keep it as a sidebar you know tried not to uh dwell on it too long, I guess. Um, Because I also still want to tell positive stories. You sit down in a room alone for three and a half years like I did, writing this book. You're creating a world out of nothing. It better be a world you like being in. (laughs) At least that's how I feel. I feel like I tend to write Utopian books? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, create worlds that that. I want to be in. And so, of course, they're occasionally going to have these elements where good things happen to good people. Yeah. And they'll sometimes be sweet like that. Because I've seen that. I've seen that sweetness in life, and I don't necessarily see it uh, in literature all that often, certainly. You know, I grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, and uh, sentimentality was, oh, (laughs) the age of irony, sentimentality was anathema.
0: And you still don't find... I don't think that much of it in contemporary literature.
1: No, it's pretty rare. Yeah. You know, it'll sneak in. Every so often, you know, you'll see a little, mo- like...
0: what You must be thinking of a Oh, a I novel. can't think of a
1: specific moment from The Overstory by Richard Powers, but oh, there's a few... Man. You're
0: talking my language a here. A few little
1: moments in there where, like, something... There's a very sweet exchange between some of the couples. hmm Yeah, that resonates. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I'm looking for. And I think a writer like him... Um, what's another one like a mm, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson? Mm, yeah, yeah, Love that novel. Yeah, another amazing multiple point of view novel where I think the author realized at a certain point that she can't merely have bad things happen to these people. <laughs> 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 that occasionally right. there's going to be some sweetness and some and some resonance with other, uh, you know, positive exchanges mm-hmm. uh, that pay off that have. That bear fruit later, yeah, and i I guess I try to do that. I try to think about the world in which, okay, the occasional <laughs> positive ramification or sentimental exchange is possible. i just I guess I just don't want it to drive the bus, but I want it sitting near the front.
0: you know here's what i here's what I felt like um, I felt like. There are there are novels that you read where the characters could encounter catastrophe, mm-hmm. and that the novelist is going to let those characters encounter mm-hmm. catastrophe, and it may not work out. Right, and you're aware of that. Mm-hmm. That's not you. No, I felt like you you kind of you held me through that, and that catastrophic (laughs) sadness (laughs) was not gonna happen to these people they Mm -hmm. experienced their own sadnesses right and disappointments
1: absolutely but in
0: the end and and i now i hear that this is by design i mean this is where you're going they they will they'll come out on the other side yeah into the light
1: yeah they're gonna be okay
0: so i i was curious about whether you read uh, John Hassler's novels
1: I did as a kid Simon's Night I, I remember that one yeah okay
0: so when I moved to Minnesota eons ago and I was trying to get a grasp of the culture here mm. um, I read John Hassler novels and at first I thought nothing ever happens this is but <laughs> do you remember that how yeah. like nothing would ever happen but yeah. things were happening
1: absolutely
0: Uh and I, I felt like um, I was really starting to understand how the the swirl in under the surface, and you know he he's great at that. Yeah, um, you read them as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, as a teenager,
1: my mom turned me on to him.
0: So she was a big reader. Big always reader. was a big reader. Big
1: reader. Yeah, she's the one who put John Hassler in my hands when I said I wanted to read a book by a Minnesota writer uh, with a Minnesota setting. Uh huh. You know, and we had had Sinclair Lewis and F. Scott Fitzgerald and other uh, Minnesota writers around the house, and I'd read some of those books as well. But Hasser was the first contemporary at the time novelist I was writing, the first living novelist uh, who was writing books in Minnesota. This was the '90s. Do you
0: um, remember what you thought of the novel, the not the first one that you read of his? Did you read? You- did you read only one?
1: I only read one. I only read Simon's. That's
0: Dyke. that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I liked it. I I thought it. Captured a realm that I hadn't often seen in books, which was the, you know, more everyday realm of Minnesota life. Uh-huh. Like these weren't fabulously wealthy people right. or people of great political significance, or, you know, they weren't making earth shaking proclamations or decisions. Uh, I read a author somewhat later that reminded me of that uh, Alice Monroe, oh. the way she writes oh, about people gosh. in rural yeah. Ontario. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe not a lot happens to them but an awful lot is happening within them.
0: What about Richard Russo? Them.
1: Oh, that's another one. That's yeah. great. Empire Falls. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: That whole community that he creates. That's such a good way to put it. Not a lot happens, but a lot is happening to them.
1: Yeah. Don't tell them it's low stakes. Right. Yeah.
0: And and the other thing about that is, and the community is aware of it. I mean, these, what we're talking about is, usually kind of a small town right mm-hmm. or a small community That's right. And everybody's observing and everybody's kind of going through which is which I think is a a quality that you've you've put into this book.
1: Oh good. What do you think of that? Oh, I take that as a compliment. Thank you. But I what, tried.
0: But what do you think of that idea that everybody, like you said, everybody has kind of a stake in I guess the quality of the lives that their neighbors are living right would i would you want to live in a place like that
1: i'd want to live in a place i certainly want to live in a place where people were aware of that and acted as if that were the case yes
0: <laughs> what did that mean that was a very complicated answer what's that mean
1: we're not always so lucky to have neighbors who are aware that their existence affects other people yeah. <laughs> Do you or, need to or, get something off your chest or Oh what's no, going on? No, actually here. I have wonderful neighbors right yeah. now. The only thing that's really compromising my neighborhood at the moment is the fact that a bear moved in. Wow. Yeah, and we can't really get it to move along yet. Yeah.
0: Really? So do you live you live in California now? Yeah, I live
1: in the uh, hillside of Burbank. So, okay. Like the woods of Burbank, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So
0: there's a bear <laughs> that has come down out of the woods. Yes.
1: Yeah. The bear came over the mountain. To and he's, paraphrase Alice Monroe again. That's right. And he's
0: <laughs> kind of settling in and enjoying this, huh? Oh, yeah.
1: It's a she. Yeah. It's a she. teenage, yeah, like two or three-year-old female bear that had been a cub in these hills. So she unfortunately doesn't know anything else. She came over with her mom after a fire a few years ago, wow. uh, neighboring mountain range, crossed a huh. freeway settled here and now has grown up and this is well i think we're making her a little too comfortable i was gonna
0: say uh you know yeah she's a neighbor you're gonna yeah. have to get used to that
1: yeah she broke into my patio fridge and ate everything out of the freezer <laughs> and drank half a beer yeah <laughs> no way yeah yeah i and, can't tell
0: if this is going into the next novel or this is
1: real yeah. this really happened yeah no it really happened it uh she also enjoys swimming in pools <laughs> She'll tear off the pool cover, shred it, and then just dive in and take a dip.
0: This is exciting.
1: Yeah, the bear is loving life.
0: This is probably, you're missing some cool stuff while you're on your book tour here in Minnesota. I know. Right? I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with J. Ryan Straddle. His new book is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, and we've been talking a little bit about experience of... Our own experiences of supper clubs and the nostalgia that goes along with that. And then, I guess, your own family life and how that kind of contributed to the concept Absolutely. of the novel. I, I was interested in uh, – I read your very long – I guess they're acknowledgments.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, wow. they're unusually I, long.
0: Every Well, you should explain why.
1: I have a lot of people to thank. This book would not exist without so many people.
0: But you have a lot of people to thank also because they shared a lot of experience and and information with you about running restaurants. Absolutely. Where'd you go? Tell, tell us a little bit about well, I'll how start, you did this. I'll
1: start with local chef Beth Dooley, who has always been at my disposal if I have a question about, okay, either restaurant operations because she's worked in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, meal preparation, you know, you name it. If I'm just kind of at at a stopping point and the question is food, food preparation, food serving, uh, front of house, back of house, she's kind of my first resource. I'll write her and say, okay, Beth, tell me, yeah, well, I remember writing her at one point. Tell me about an item of food that you've only ever seen in Minnesota, like a distinctly <laughs> Minnesotan food, because I, I feel like I've written about them all, and I know I'm missing something. There's something I want to write about or mention in this book. And she said, have you written about porketta sandwiches yet? Oh. And I what, said, I have What, only haven't. in
0: Minnesota? I You're think kidding. so.
1: Iron Range porketta sandwiches? Huh. I mean, maybe, like, in northeastern Wisconsin. Uh, maybe uh. some have spilled over into Superior or something. Yeah. Yeah, but she was right. I I don't see them in California. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really anywhere else, like specifically pork head of sandwiches? No, no. And I thought, great. So why well, write you, Beth? Thank you so much. She's wonderful. She helped me rekindle an acquaintanceship I had. I had met the local chef and writer, uh, Sean Sherman, mm-hmm. at a literary festival in South Dakota a few years ago. And I knew this book would have a native restaurant in it. So I wanted to contact Sean and Ask him questions about it because I wanted to get these details right. Now, I have his cookbook that he co-wrote with Beth, but I wanted to hear it from him because I'd heard at the time he was planning to open a restaurant, which, it, of course, is now open. Right. the time I interviewed him, it wasn't open yet. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to get the details right. And Beth was able to uh, connect us again. And so, yeah, tremendously helpful local resource. And beyond that, my former boss at the Steamboat Inn, Prescott, Wisconsin, Mike Rowan, and his son, Pat, they were wonderful resources. Mike told me what it was like to run a supper club. Uh, he gave me some great stories, uh, some of which ended up in the book. And Pat talked about what it was like to be the son of a manager at a supper club and be growing up <laughs> in one and doing your homework in your dad's office and right. uh, hanging out at the bar, eating mar- maraschino cherries and, you know, just the, th- the things you would do to pass time and mark time when this was your home outside of school. Yeah. Yeah. When you're running a restaurant like that, and Mike Rowan reminded me of that, your family kind of has to get involved or you won't see them, especially in the summer or if it's in a tourist area, you know. um, Yeah, your summers are kind of toast. And I talk about that in this book, too, about how this character, Julia, the daughter of a supper club owner, has never had a summer vacation. (laughs) Right. She's just kind of expected to help her parents (laughs) at this restaurant.
0: Exactly. You know, the thing that... um, Like I said, I I worked in restaurants for years. Like I started at 16 and uh, worked all through college and after college uh, when I was making no money Mm. in broadcasting. And um, the camaraderie, there's something – and I know you get this since you worked in restaurants too. But there is something that becomes a world unto itself. You work different hours than a lot of people and the people that are kind of enduring this, the highs, the lows, that they're your people. Then you find yourself, it's not enough to work an eight or 10 hour shift with them. Then you have to go out and drink and socialize with them.
1: <laughs> Do know. you
0: remember that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Isn't and that weird? Isn't it funny to think about? Yeah. And the same is true in television and film, too. I mean, Jeez, you spent, right. yeah, yeah, like I remember working on the show Deadliest Catch, where we'd work six, seven hour. Um, I'm sorry, six, seven-day weeks off, and we wouldn't get weekends off sometimes, and we'd be working at least 12-hour days in post to wrangle this incredible (laughs) surplus of footage into a coherent 42-minute show. And the crazy thing is, after spending this much time with these people, like, okay, what are you going to do now? I'm not tired. I I don't feel like going home. Yeah, let's go out for dinner. Let's go out and get a drink, you know? (laughs) Yeah. just end up spending more time with them, electively, yeah, and so you develop this shorthand with them, this intimacy that is engendered through being colleagues, but it's something more. Also, each enterprise, whether it's a restaurant or a TV production, you're creating something for other people. Mm. You are not the end user of this experience. Um, you're creating something that is meant to be consumed and judged, too. You know? And in and, and a restaurant, of course, you get a more immediate reaction. Like, yeah. send this back. This isn't what I ordered. And uh, TV, you wait a few weeks at at most, uh, sometimes months for uh, you to get a conception of what people think of your work. Um, but either way, you're there. There's this largely opaque <laughs> recipient of or recipients of, of, of the labor you're uh, collaborating with. Uh-huh. And yeah, and at the time, you know, I suppose you're thinking about that, but you're thinking about each step you've got to do on the path to creating this product. Uh, and, yeah, it's uh, it's it's intense. I, I know talking to some people who've been in theater, it's similar. Mm. Yeah, like my uh, partner, Brooke, who has an MFA in theater and also has worked in restaurants, describes the restaurant scene for an employee as having a camaraderie not unlike a theater production. Huh. Wow,
0: that's really interesting. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, the structure of of the novel, because we're meeting three generations of women who have different relationships to the Supper Club and Mm -hmm. different relationships to one another and the communities that they live in. Before you read the excerpt, tell me a little bit more without, you know, ruining some of the interesting turns, um, how you describe kind of where we go in the novel?
1: Well, the novel covers 100 years in the life of the Supper Club and four generations, starting with Betty Miller, who marries into the... uh,
0: Did I say three? Four.
1: Oh, oh, you said three. But yeah, you're right. There's only three of them have point of view chapters. Yeah. Yeah. Betty doesn't get a voice as such in this book. Her story is told by her daughter, Florence. So starting with Betty, who's a very eager participant in the world of Supper Clubs, we... Proceed to Florence, the f- next generation that grows up working in it, and kind of decides it's not for her. Yet at the same time, when she ret- when she returns to this town, she'll eat in this restaurant, and it tugs at her in the way that, mm, yeah, a not entirely pleasant memory tugs at you, you know, one that you have complex <laughs> relationships with. Uh-huh. I mean, she had the love of her life work alongside her at this restaurant. They didn't stay together. They broke up. They each went their separate ways. and Now she's back here in one chapter, eating with her current husband and some mutual friends. She has a daughter, Mariel, who takes after her grandmother and is a very enthusiastic participant in separate club culture and wants to be there, I think partially to get away from her mom <laughs> and partially to participate And something she knows she belongs to via her birthright and understand it and enjoy it. Like, wow, this is a place that could be me. This could be my future. And she's interested in exploring that. And then they have a – Mariel has a daughter, Julia, the fourth generation that takes after Florence a bit more. Mm, Right. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a little bit of a seesaw there in terms of how eager each subsequent generation is on picking up the mantle of this legacy and uh, pursuing it even – for their own ends um so when i talk about florence going back to the supper club in the 50s like it's a complex thing for her yet at the same time i think she still appreciates it one of my favorite little moments in the book is when florence is oh really irritated or just uh, just uh aghast at the presence of the salad bar this newfangled invention. Because she had been a salad girl. She had once <laughs> yeah, made all the salads.
0: Right. 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 You know,
1: like right. There was no salad girl position anymore. There was just the salad bar. And she said, just sits out there gathering germs. I guess that's the way people like it now. You know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So the excerpt is, that I asked if you would read is a scene where Florence and her husband Gustav, mm-hmm. they're at Floyd and Betty's Lakeside Supper Club and as as Jay has said, they she uh, Florence kind of has a complicated relationship with this place. Um, they're there for their anniversary, and this is kind of a turning point in their relationship. What what else would you do? You want to say before you read this, if anything?
1: Yeah, she's there for their anniversary, and it was a surprise. Gustav sprung it on her. They went this. They went to this place together early on in their relationship when um they had just met and gustav is unaware of <laughs> florence's history with this place I mean, he thought it was an incredibly sweet gesture yes. to bring her back to her hometown and <laughs> has her- the
0: dude not been listening Okay, no, go, ahead. go ahead. that's what i kept thinking like what anyway yeah. sorry interrupted you okay yeah, what no else problem. do you want to say something else
1: i'll i'll stop there and just All go right, right into go it right ahead Once the drinks arrived, Gustav stood up and raised his glass to the entire restaurant. Everyone, let's have a toast to my wife of 15 years, Florence Stenerud. Please don't, Florence said, but everyone did it anyway. Gustav was always doing normal, thoughtful things like planning surprise parties, booking suites at the hotel where they met arranging dinners with her friends, and proudly making their anniversary into a public occasion. She loved this man. She did. She loved his simple, steady ambitions, his confidence, and, who was she kidding, his startling good looks. She loved his comfortable childhood and his adoring, financially stable parents. She also loved that he was the fun school teacher that all the kids liked, even if she was the hard-ass they all feared and loathed. <laughs> Not least of all, she loved the fact that they, were, they once wanted the same kind of future, even if it had been for different reasons. Now she raised a drink to this man, thanked him, saw the wonderful father he would soon likely be, and never felt so scared. It didn't matter if Gustav was the happiest, calmest, most easygoing man on the planet, and he was pretty close. The anxiety and sadness Florence brought to their genetic potluck was so powerful, even cut with Gustav's sweetness and light, it would doom some unlucky child to a life of profound unhappiness. As Florence watched Gustav talk with her old friend Mildred, who had had five children by age thirty, it occurred to her how overjoyed her husband would be with such an unruly brood. To her, the compromise was having a child, but to him, the compromise was having only one. Had Florence entered the majestic lodge through the employee's door that one day long ago, and not the main lobby. Maybe he'd have met someone who is an eager and wonderful mother. But often, that's not the way life works. People like Gustav end up with people like Florence, and children are born with their hearts already broken for the mother they needed and will never have. (laughs)
0: J. Ryan Straddle reading from his new novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. You said you were surprised that I chose that? Yeah. The reason I did is she's mature enough to have that kind of self-awareness, which um, I felt like we really – that's the moment when I really felt like I had a full actualization of who Florence is. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's, there's sadness there.
1: Yeah. And I'm not sure she would have come to this conclusion had she not been in this environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That this combination of factors, you know, being amidst this conversation the couple's been having about having a child, mm-hmm. her thawing on that topic, getting to that point where, okay, I guess, at the same time being brought back to an extremely loaded place from her past, uh, eating with childhood friends who had enjoyed uh, aspects of life that Gustav envies in terms of parenthood. All of these factors, you know, her seeing her old high school boyfriend and lover Al, who's still working at this restaurant. Right. Yeah. All these factors just kind of started falling into the (laughs) cauldron of her mind and created these conclusions um, that, yeah, I agree, I don't think she would have had before or, or would have had under other circumstances. And so while she, for most of the book, is not someone given to thorough self-examination, mm-hmm. I think in this moment of great discomfort that she's experiencing here, she's trying to understand why she's uncomfortable. And this is the conclusion she comes to.
0: She's also, she's truly, and, th- and this happens to, everyone who lives deep into their adulthood.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you get, you recede further and further from your childhood. Yeah, I think, I think she's kind of at that moment where she really sees some of the decisions she made, some of the things she loved about, you know, whatever those, those choices that she thought she could make as a, as a child, She's kind of putting those things away in mm-hmm. some ways and saying and stepping truly into adulthood. Yeah. As most of us do. Do mm-hmm. you think you're at that point where you've stepped fully into adulthood?
1: Uh, me personally? Yeah. Mm. I'm afraid so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or or pretty close. Uh, becoming a father, it sort of became one of the key steps to that. I don't think... Obviously, anyone needs to be a parent to be an adult. (laughs) But for me, it was a recalibration, not only of priorities, but of memories and their utility. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remarked to my friend Amy Schabert the other night, she's a wonderful local baker, uh, bakes for the lowbrow. She's got a child a little older than my son. I remarked to her that I felt when my son was born, half the card catalog in my brain just emptied out. Just, just burned up, like they're like you're 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 going to need this mental space for other things now. Here's some <laughs> memories you haven't thought of in a while. It's sort of like That's if I funny. had, let's say, if I had a man cave at home. I don't, but let's say I did. That was full of old vinyl and yeah. you know Minnesota Vikings jerseys and and we come home and we're like, okay, where are we going to put the nursery? Well, there's one obvious room. You know, it's like well, the man cave leave. goes. Yeah, yeah. Right. It, it kind of felt like that in a sense that. A certain amount of just memories and things that I'd been, I don't know, um, things I'd let take up space in my mind yeah. just suddenly vanished. Like, I, since being a, becoming a father, I've forgotten whole years of my life. <laughs> and I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, you're also making it, like, like you've just alluded to, you're making a decision that, I don't know, some of us were clinging... Do you do you know those people, too, that kind of cling on to, uh, you know, the year they were 22? Oh, sure. It, that becomes really boring after a while. No kidding. Especially when you're sharing it with somebody who wasn't there. Oh, yeah. But it, it's healthy, I think, to let go, right?
1: Right. It And it's also, also healthy at times to reconnect with people who you do share those experiences yeah, with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if it's used as... A tool for connection. Great. right? But if it's a, oh, if all its obtuse alchemy gets you is a bunker, I don't know how helpful that is to anyone. (laughs) Yeah. And nostalgia is a bunker for a lot of people. And it's too bad because it doesn't have to be armor against the world coming in. It can be a platter in which the world can uh, (laughs) provide its wares to you and you can meet it halfway. You know, you can use it as a point of connection to other people. I find myself doing that when I get together with my high school friends, like occasionally I'll put on an old nineties mix or something. <laughs> and then, then we'll end up having conversations like I had with my friend, Jeremy Schmidt, uh, lives in Seattle. Now I live in California. We're both from Hastings where we kind of challenge each other's memories, which is a tremendously useful thing That's to do fun. as you approach 50. That like, is really fun. like, I didn't remember that particular concert that way at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah like, right. I remember telling my friends, uh, um, Tony Norgard and Ken Nicholas about who I thought was at the first concert I went to. Yeah, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, they actually put me on a podcast with someone, uh, a mutual friend, uh, KT Craig, uh, who also went to high school with us. Because I had told Tony that, oh yeah, I went to the my, my first ever show with uh, Stacy and KT, and and he got KT on, and we were going to talk about our shared experience at the first ever concert we attended. We're about halfway through, and KT said,
0: I think you're talking about a different concert. <laughs> you weren't there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Her yeah. eye wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. I did That's go to a funny. concert with
1: you, but not this one yeah. you're describing. And and my my brain had wired it in a completely different way that I guess must have suited whatever I needed. That's right. Yeah. Right.
0: The That's, story you're telling yourself about that. Right. So right. it's
1: wonderful to have these stories disabused rather than confirmed. Because if there's a, I don't know, if there's if there's a reason you're remembering something incorrectly, it's fun to unpack that. It's fun for me. Right. And I think that's part of the danger with nostalgia is, well, it's not necessarily an incorrect uh, version of the past. It's a limited one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, increasingly limited if you don't share it and don't invite it to be challenged. Because it can still exist. I mean... Well, one of the things that really bugs me is when I go online and let's say, you know, the new Ghostbusters movie came out like five years ago with an all female cast. There are all these annoying men going online. I wondered where you were going. They ruined the movie. Like, no, they didn't. The movie you say you enjoyed still exists. (laughs) And now there's this other movie that other people can enjoy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) J. Ryan Straddle's new novel is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club fun to talk. Thank you for coming in. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Me too.